0: Section 0 of Modern Russian Literature This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Modern Russian Literature by D. S. Mirsky Preliminary Russian literature is synonymous, for the purposes of the general reader, with Modern Russian Literature. There is, it is true, an old Russian literature, which goes back as far as the middle of the 11th century. It is of prime importance to the student of old Russian civilization, but it offers little in the way of literary masterpieces. The exceptions, like the medieval prose poem of the Campaign of Igor, circa 1186, and the autobiography of the archpriest Avakum, 1620 to 1681 only proved the rule they are almost mysteriously isolated and rise like solitary volcanoes over a gently undulating plain the old russians were not lacking in artistic impulses but they directed them into different channels they gave expression to their sense of beauty in their religious painting and in their church architecture, rather than in works of imaginative literature. Old Russia was not favorably placed for the development of a literary tradition. On the one hand, she was separated from the West by religious difference which excluded her from the community of Latin nations. On the other hand, she could not in any appreciable degree learn from Byzantine Greece. There was no necessity for the Russians to study Greek, as the custom of the Eastern Church gave the national vernaculars an entirely independent ecclesiastical status. Only those Greek writings were translated or imitated, which were indispensable for the working of the Church. Poetry, if it did chance to crop up, had no tradition to lean upon, The Campaign of Vigor is the solitary remnant of a native school of secular poetry which, but for a lucky chance, might have disappeared without leaving a trace. Modern Russian literature owes next to nothing to old Russian literature. From the point of view of literary culture, it is entirely an offshoot of Western civilization. It has many roots in Russian life, but no roots in any native literary tradition. The Russian literary language had a continuous development from the oldest time to ours, but the pedigree of the literary forms and ideas naturalized in Russia since the 18th century has to be traced to the French and Provencal poets of the 12th century or to the Italian Renaissance, not to any native source. All this does not, of course, impair the originality of Russian literature. What happened in Russia in the 17th 18th century was very much like what happened in England in the 13th 14th century. English medieval and modern literature is a development of continental traditions rather than of the poetry of Beowulf and the Cadmon poems. The originality of English as of Russian literature is due to the creative power of individual genius and to creative forces developed by the nation outside the domain of literature, not to a continuous development from the earliest times. The same may apply in varying degrees to every modern nation. Greek is the only European literature that has developed along entirely native lines. Modern Russian literature began in the 17th century as an imitation of Polish models, and up to the middle of the 18th century it was but the province of a province. Lomonosov, 1711 to 1765, who has been called the Peter the Great of Russian civilization, was the first to go directly to the source of the literary culture of the times, to the literature of French classicism. For 80 years... Russian literary history becomes the history of a gradual assimilation of the best fruit of Western literature. The writers of the time are schoolmasters and translators whose task it was to teach and to adapt rather than to create. The period did produce in Derzhavin, 1743 to 1816, a poet of eccentric genius and abundant originality, but the main line of progress is marked by the names of men of less creative power but greater cultural receptivity. The chief of these names, after Lomonosovs, are those of Karamzin, 1766-1826, and Zhukovsky, 1783-1852, two great pedagogues who familiarized Russia with Rousseau and Ossian and Hede, and all the pre-Romantic literature of England and Germany. Zhukovsky did more than that, for he brought Russian verse to perfection and set the standard of style which was to become the style of the golden age of Russian poetry. This golden age began with the publication of Pushkin's first book in 1820. Pushkin is the greatest name in Russian literature. He is more than that to the Russian mind. He is the impersonation and the purest essence of poetry. He is also what Goethe is to the Germans and Dante to the Italians, the ideal incarnation and symbol of national civilization. Few foreigners have been able to understand this Russian attitude towards Pushkin. Still fewer have found it possible to place him, as the Russians do, among the greatest poets of all nations. Though he is the most universal and the most European of Russian writers, he is still the divinity of a strictly national cult. This sounds paradoxical, but is only natural. The foreign reader values Russian writers for what he thinks are their most Russian qualities qualities which he cannot find anywhere else. Russian literature is still exotic to the rest of Europe, and prized there in the measure of its obvious originality. To the Russian reader, this preoccupation does not exist, and it is precisely Pushkin's universality, his pan-humanity, as Dostoevsky put it, that makes him what he is to the Russian mind. Another reason why only Russians can fully appreciate him is that he was a poet, and a poet can be really understood only by those who have mastered the language he wrote in well enough to feel those imponderable and elusive elements which give each word its poetical value. Then again, the beauty of his poetry is of a kind which is not usually expected from a poet calling himself a romanticist a contemporary of Shelley and Victor Hugo. His virtues are harmony, taste, and sense of measure. His effects are never startling. They are produced by outline rather than by color. By continuous excellency, not by quote-unquote purple patches. In a word, his poetry is classical. And if the classical virtues are admired in Greek and French poetry, It is not in quest of them that the English or French reader turns to Russia, the country of Bolshevism, of Dostoevsky, and of the Russian ballet. It is indeed difficult for the foreigner, perhaps impossible, if he is ignorant of the language, to believe in the supreme greatness of Pushkin among Russian writers. Yet it is necessary for him to accept the belief, even if he disagrees with it. Otherwise, every idea he may form of Russian literature and Russian civilization will be inadequate and out of proportion with reality. Pushkin's place in modern Russian literature is very similar to Chaucer's place in medieval English literature. Like Chaucer, he does not in any sense break away from the preceding international tradition – but without trying to be national is national by the mere fact of his superior genius and of his comprehensive humanity. Like Chaucer's, his poetry is aristocratic in origin, but universal in scope, and like Chaucer's, it becomes the starting point of a great tradition and throws into the shade all that preceded it. The difference is that in England immediately after Chaucer there began a period of decline and comparative sterility which lasted for more than a century, in which Chaucer's tradition was squandered by a succession of inferior imitators. Pushkin's period finished much more abruptly, in fact it finished before his death, but it was succeeded by a period of powerful and antagonistic creative forces during which Pushkin survived rather as a great name than as a living influence. He becomes a treasure house carefully guarded, but scarcely drawn upon. Like Chaucer, Pushkin was not alone. By the side of Chaucer there was Gower. By the side of Pushkin a whole host of poets, some of whom, like Paratinsky and Yazikov, were men of powerful and strikingly original genius more strikingly original than Pushkin, and for that very reason, inferior to him. But even the most indubitably minor poets of the group have such an air of distinction and elegance about them, they use their limited powers with such adequacy, there is in them so much taste and beautiful craftsmanship, that even apart from Pushkin, this period was a golden age of poetry, So high was the artistic level of its poetical production. This golden age came to an end about 1831, and was followed by a period of about 15 years of rapid transition. Romanticism, which had been a watchword, but not an essential element of the preceding decade, now asserted itself more strongly. German influences poured in in full stream. It was an age of conflicting ideas and rapid evolution. In contrast to the harmony of the preceding age, it was dominated by the struggle of opposing forces. The great names of the period are those of poets of discord and violent contrasts, Gogol, Lermontov, and Tuchev, who wrote and published most of his best work before 1840, though it met with recognition only much later. What is even more important, the fundamental conceptions of art were changed. It ceased to be the free and self-justified craftsmanship it had been to Pushkin and his contemporaries, and came to be dominated by or subservient to ideas. The aesthetic doctrines of the great German philosophers played a principal part in this change. As a consequence, the standards of workmanship were lowered, and the poetic culture of the preceding age disappeared. Lermontov and Tuchev were great poets, but they remained isolated without any healthy undergrowth around them. Poetry began to give way to prose. Still, the center of gravity remained on the side of poetry, and the prose of Gogol, who wrote no verse, is a poet's prose, or at worst, a rhetorician's. It abounds in rhythm in verbal effects and in lyrical emotion at the same time the idealism and the cult of the absolute produced by the contact with german metaphysics gave birth to a new mentality which contrasts sharply with the finite and relative humanism of Pushkin. russian idealism came into being in the two opposite and yet twin forms of Slavophilism and Radicalism. Herzen called them the two heads of a single Janus. Both were intrinsically dogmatic and aimed at the subjection of all human activity to one supreme ideal. The more complete and refined philosophy of Slavophilism attracted the more philosophical minds and became the leaven of all independent original Russian thought. Radicalism became a secular religion, which imposed itself on the great majority of educated Russians for more than 60 years. The radical journalist Belinsky molded the mentality of the budding intelligentsia and imposed on the public his idea of what, in a general scheme of progress, literature should be. Gogol, interpreted as he was by Belinsky in a violent and arbitrary fashion, became the idol of the young generation. There came into existence a natural school, which, after a few years' groping, sprang into sudden maturity in the bewilderingly abundant literary harvest of the year 1846. All this rapid development made the writings of the preceding age obsolete, and the new generation retained from the times that preceded it only that which it could interpret as an anticipation of its own literary and social ideals. It retained Pushkin as a myth rather than as a body of work, and it retained all that was felt to be akin to its own realism. The preceding age began to be seen exclusively from the angle of the new age, and it was left to our own times to restore it to its true proportions, a process which is by no means at an end. Though some writers who like broad and general views have spoken of the inherent realism of the Russian people and traced its history to the popular tales and the popular epics of the North, I do not believe in the use of such racial generalizations. The real fathers of Russian realism are... Boileau, Molière, and La Fontaine. There is in the poetry of Dejavin, among many other remarkable things, a vigorous and eccentric strain of naturalism. But the traditions of realism first asserted themselves in Russia mainly in connection with the classical genres of satire, comedy, and fable. The satires of Kantemir, the comedies of von Wiesen, the long lines of Russian fabulists culminating in the wonderful and yet French bred raciness of Krylov, are the true predecessors of the natural school. The traditions of Molière, von Wiesen, and Krylov met in the work of Griboyedov, 1795-1829, whose great comedy, Gore Atoma, the misfortune of being clever, or better, woe from wit, published in 1825, is the first revelation of that wonderful power of character-drawing which struck the Western reader when he first discovered the Russian novel. The comedy, written in the full summer of the Golden Age, is in rhyme. So is the greatest of Pushkin's contributions to the realistic tradition, perhaps his greatest work altogether, the novel in verse Yevgeny Anegin. Being a novel in verse and not a novel, quote, the devil of a difference, And quote, according to Pushkin, Yevgeny Onygin contains many beautiful things that are absent from the most poetical novels of Turgenev, but, like Turgenev's novels, it is a novel of character, not of plot. Its interest is lyrical and psychological rather than narrative. The characters of Onegin and Tatiana contain in a nutshell almost all the portrait gallery of Turgenev's novels. Onegin was completed in 1831. After that date Pushkin, following the general trend of the times, passed to prose. Unlike Onegin, his novel The Captain's Daughter, a Waverly novel, but condensed to a third of the length of one of Scott's and his stories, of which the most famous is the Queen of Spades, are not stories of character, but pure stories of action. The example of Pushkin was but little followed by the Russian realists, but at least he taught them to write prose that relied for its effect exclusively on the logical quality of the thoughts expressed, not on the ornaments of style. Of all prose writers, Pushkin is most akin to Caesar. Pushkin's tradition was carried on by Lermontov. In his great novel, The Hero of Our Times, 1840, he continued the tradition of Onegin in his character drawing and of the Queen of Spades in his style. But unlike Pushkin's, it is a novel of direct analysis, and in the history of analytic novels, Lermontov is, together with Stendhal, a link between the older French tradition and Tolstoy. Pushkin, Griboyedov and Lermontov would have been sufficient to call Russian realism into life, but as a matter of historical fact, the natural school was much more affected by the example of Gogol than by that of anyone else. In the traditional history of Russian literature, Gogol is the founder of the realistic novel, but applied to Gogol the word realistic must be used with many reservations. There was a strong unrealistic strain in his genius, a strain that was at once romantic, rhetorical and burlesque. His prose is elaborate and ornate. It is never simple like Pushkin's or Lermontov's. It is always in one of the extremes of farce or rhetoric. He chooses his subjects from the trivialities of provincial life, but he treats them in a manner very different from that of the realist. Reality is for him a material for creating grotesque forms, which, though their moral value may be different, are keen to the delightful characters of Dickens. His people are rampantly alive, but they are not real people. He has an abnormally sensitive eye for the details of real life, but he uses these realistic details to construct monsters as impossible as unicorns and griffins, which yet seem more alive than if they were real. It was his choice of subject, and the material he used, that made Gogol the paragon of realism to his admirers of 1845. They made him also the paragon of social satire and socially conscious art and yet his satire was merely the outcome of an exuberant creative temperament, creating only grotesque and ugly figures. It made him a satirist, but this did not mean that he was in any sense opposed to the existing order of things in Russia. He never realized the social and political implications of his satire, which had originated in sheer joy of creation, but he gave the public such grotesque and Aristophanesque pictures of provincial bureaucracy that his comedy Revizor, the Inspector General, and his satirical, quote-unquote, epic Dead Souls could not but be received as social satires. So they were, and they became the starting points of the social literature of the natural school. The distinctive note of subsequent Russian realism with its studied simplicity and sense of proportion and restraint, is struck much more by the work of Griboyedov, Pushkin, and Lermontov than by the exuberant, elaborate, and grotesque inventions of Gogol. Dostoevsky alone, of all the natural school, did actually inherit some of his characteristics. End of section zero.